Welcome. The power of the Israel lobby has been growing for decades. Since 1948, Israel has been the leading recipient of U.S. foreign aid, mostly military, and USAID to Israel has even exceeded the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II. This powerful lobby has inserted itself between politicians and the American people, and it has become a major obstacle, if not the major obstacle, to peace in the Middle East. Available specialty polls, public opinion polling, shows that most Americans now oppose U.S. Middle East military interventions and violations of international law, as well as unconditional foreign aid packages to Israel. But experts and alternative voices with better non-Israel-centric peaceful policy options face tremendous obstacles gaining platforms in news media, government, and policy-making circles. But what if they could get a relevant platform, at least for a single day every year? Since 2015, Israel Lobby Khan has brought together some of the most dedicated and uh, interesting voices from the US and around the world. The networking and relationship building, as well as information gathering opportunities of this conference are unmatched, though not necessarily by some of the conferences we're gonna be talking about by our guests staged at the National Press Club in Washington and occurring just days before the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee annual conference, Israel Lobby Khan even gets a little bit of mainstream news coverage, sometimes from C-SPAN, it's been covered briefly by the Washington Post and many, many alternative news outlets. We can't presently meet at the National Press Club but we can still gather with top experts and you online to focus on how to transcend harmful Israel lobby initiatives and work for better outcomes. A reminder that this public forum online, we're working just like we do at our conferences to ensure our speakers, moderators, and attendees don't use it as a platform to perpetuate racist or bigoted behaviors or practices. And our conference has always stood opposed to anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish, white nationalists, and other forms of racism and expressions of bigotry directed at any person or group. And we also reject the charge of anti-Semitism when it's used spuriously to silence legitimate criticism of Israel's policies and practicing, practices. So, presenting Israel Abikan Extra. This is co-organized by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. This online series we're calling Extra does not replace our annual National Press Club Conference, which has been rescheduled for March 2021. Uh, but until we reconvene at the National Press Club, we extend a warm welcome to Extra. So today we have Soot Jolly. I'm Grant Smith, Research Director of IRMAP. Um, and we also have 
As backups, Dale Sprzansky, managing editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, as well as Sami Tayeb of the Middle East Books and More. They'll jump in and take over in case I get disconnected. Uh, we all want to welcome Sujali to this first session. Sujali has had a long career as a professor, film documentarian, and researcher. He was, until June of 2020, the chair of the Department of Education at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, which he joined in 1985. He wrote or edited six books, numerous articles, editorials, and reports. He won the Distinguished Teacher Award and was named Best Professor by the Daily Collegian. Since 2005, he has taught thousands of UMass students in his large in-person and online lectures. And we'll ask him how you can view some of those online lectures at the end. In 1992, he was named one of New Woman Magazine's People of the Year. And he's been awarded the Distinguished Outreach Award and was selected to deliver a Distinguished Faculty Lecture in 2007. In 1992, he launched the Media Education Foundation to produce and distribute documentary films and other resources. And we'll link their catalog below uh, the YouTube archived video of today's events. Uh, Media Education Foundation's purpose is to inspire critical thinking about the political, social, and cultural impact of American mass media. And the work we'll be discussing today is the 2016 documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind. It describes how the pro-Israel lobby, Israel, and the U.S. government have worked to shape American media coverage of the conflict and how it regularly minimizes the occupation, vilifies critics of Israeli policy, and dehumanizes the Palestinian people. Today's format uh, is that we'll have Professor Jolly make some opening of remarks, and then we're going to roll three short clips from the occupation of the American mind and ask Jolly to comment on how they relate to the current environment. And all the time, we'll be taking your comments via YouTube chat. And I can see a few interesting chats already popping up. Um, many people who have already watched this video I'm seeing, many people who have talked about uh, this and attended the conference. So we'll take your questions too from the YouTube chat. And we also have some questions already sent in by participants. But we'd like to start off by asking uh, Sajali, how is it you became involved in this issue? Hi, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I mean, the way I got involved in it was I'm interested in, and I was teaching and I research issues to do with with propaganda and ideology, and that's why I mean I was teaching courses in that, uh, large courses in that at UMass, uh, dealing with issues of you know foreign policy and the way that international news was presented by uh, was presented by the mainstream media. Uh, and that, and the way I taught really got turned around in 1996, because um, I went to there was a there was a conference here. Uh, actually, it was a celebration of the work of the great uh, third world or the great Pakistani uh, uh, intellectual Ekbal Ahmed, um, and um, there was a celebration of his work. And anyone who was on the left was here for that. Chomsky was here for that, uh, and and Edward Said came to give the keynote talk. Uh, on it. And when Edward was speaking, when Edward Said was speaking, this was 1996, uh, he had tears running down his eyes. And he said, the reason I'm here um, is that when the rest of the left 
forgot the Palestinians, Ekbal Ahmed did not forget. And for that, he paid a great price. And then he talked about how, you know, how Ekbal never forgot about the Palestinian issue and how central it was third world liberation. And when I was sitting there in the audience, I was thinking, why, and, and I was, this, this thought came over me, like, why don't I deal with Israel-Palestine in my classes? You know, it was a, there was a time of, um, in, in, the, in the 90s, it was a time of uh, U.S. intervention in, uh, in uh, South America, Central America, you know, and, and I, I was dealing with all of these issues, and I wasn't dealing with, with, the, with the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and I, and I realized why, and I realized because it was, I was, um, I was a coward. Because I knew that if I started to deal with this issue, um, that all kinds of accusations would be made against me, and it wouldn't be an easy thing to do. Um, and I, uh, you know, it was, I was, and I was a full professor. I was a tenured full professor, and yet the the the, the pressure or the thought that someone would call me a racist or an anti-Semite, and the pressure we put on was was so great that I just had not done it in my, not, not dealt with it in my classes. Um, and then from that moment, I realized that actually this is the key. Anyone who teaches propaganda and issues to do with public relations, if you do not deal with the way that Israel has controlled the discourse around this, and I, in, in public relations schools, they should look at the, the, the Israeli PR campaign as a case study of how to run a campaign. Um, uh, that you're not doing a job. And from that moment on, I started to integrate issues to do with, with Israel because to be intellectually honest, to be intellectually honest, you have to do that. Uh, right. You have to forget about the, the pressure that's going to come. Well, now I put up a couple of quick shots uh, of your incredible conferences, uh, your massive events that you've done including not backing down Israel free speech in the battle for Palestinian rights, which is May 4 of 2019. You're criminalizing dissent, the attack on BDS and pro-Palestinian speech, um, which was November 2019. Tell us a little bit about those events, including the lawsuit wanting to stop the first and the pressure from pro-Israel groups on the university to, to make the university distance itself from these events, especially around the uh, issue of sponsorship. Sure. I mean, again, the way in which this has worked out in the culture is uh, the one place where there could be any kind of discussion, any kind of free discussion mm -hmm. around issues of, of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is the university, is the academy. Um, and therefore, those of us who are in the academy have a great responsibility to make sure that this issue is talked about because it's not talked about anywhere else. And mm -hmm. so I did it in my teaching. I did it in my, in, through my filmmaking, but also, uh, also wanted to do, do some very large events that no one could ignore. Um, and so we did this first event. I organized this first event that you can see on right now, uh, you know, that had Dave Zyron and Roger Waters and Linda Sassour and Mark Mott Hill. And it was, it was, uh, um, moderated by Vijay Prashad, uh, called Not Backing Down. Um, and we, we, we managed to book the largest auditorium in the university, which holds uh, about 1,800 people. Yeah, massive. Uh, and we had this incredible, you know, and, and people really wanted to see it. And, you know, partly was, you know, because Roger was there, and Roger is such a draw on these things. But no sooner had we kind of announced it, than the pressure came um, uh, to, for us to cancel it. 
Mm -hmm. uh, firstly, there was a lawsuit that, that, that was uh, launched um, by this incredibly horrible right-wing racist group in Boston to try and uh, to try and make sure we didn't do it. And then um, there was all kinds of pressure that went on to the university that came to the chancellor uh, from, you know, from donors, from politicians, from all kinds of places, trying to, trying to get him to, trying to get them to, or trying to get the university to, to stop this, uh, stop this from happening. Um, they couldn't stop it from happening. Actually, what, one thing I found out was, was very interesting in here was also the way the pressure works. Because um, the universities and administrators, they, they like defending you when the people you're being attacked by are these kind of lunatic Zionists, mm -hmm. uh, groups like camera. You know, these, and, and they feel proud that they can defend themselves against what are seen as extremists. And in fact, the, the, the chancellor, you know, who was joking to me about how uh, before this event, before this event, how, you know, I was the person who got the most amount of hate mail for, but it was okay. And it was these crazy Zionists. But yeah. when this event happened and it became much more mainstream, the pressure he was getting was not from these crazies. The pressure he was getting was from, from kind of mainstream politicians and other people um, and donors, especially. And, he, and the pressure was of a different nature. The pressure was of a, And they did, and the, and the university did all they could as a result of this to distance themselves from the event. When, right. in fact, a, proper, a real university, a you know, university committed to free speech, would have embraced this event and said, there's a reason why it's being attacked and we are going to embrace it and we're going to sponsor it. This is precisely, but in fact, the university did exactly the opposite. They said, well, we can't stop it taking place because it's an independent organization that's, you know, and, but, and they did all they could to say, but it's not, an, it's not a university event and, you know, we deplore. And, and then they went on to attack people like Roger Waters and Linda Sassour uh, uh, and Mark Lamont Hill as anti-Semites. Uh, and but, you know, so we can't do anything. We can't stop these anti-Semite speaking. But you know, uh, and that's when I realized. That's when I realized where the pressure comes from. It's not the lunatic. It's not. The, it's not the. It's not the cameras of the world, right? Uh, who have you know very little influence. It's mainstream, uh, and that's where the pressure really told. And the same thing happened with the second event that we had, um, which was criminalizing dissent. Uh, yes. And again, the first response was eighty pro-Zionist organizations. Uh, wrote to the university one demanding that it be cancelled or, or at least that it be not connected to the university. And that's really important for them is that, that this needs to be seen not as a legitimate academic pursuit, not as a legitimate academic question, but something like, you know, something from the outside. Um, and so the issue of sponsorship, like how departments sponsor events, become mm -hmm. an essential issue of this so to such an extent <laughs> that the faculty senate which is the main kind of governing body uh, um, was tasked with coming up with uh, with a policy around sponsorship and yeah. it's it one of these things i had to come up with a general policy but it was in fact a one issue it was a, you know it was about one issue which was about about israel palestine and and i think I just, the last thing i want to say about this is there's a lot of pressure but i think the only reason that tenure exists for people that mm -hmm. i can tenure exists is precisely to do things that are unpopular but need to be done. And I wish more people, when, when I spoke to, when, when I heard Edward Said speak in 1996, um, I realized I had not used tenure. Tenure isn't about you know, retiring and working on your garden and doing safe. Gotta use it. Tenure is you gotta use it. If you have it, you have to use it. And I think not enough people use it. 
Um, yeah. So I was actually happy to, to get the pressure because tenure gives you that protection. Right. You know, the only right. protection it doesn't give you from is, you know, people calling you, calling you names, but that's, you know, that's not the worst, that's not the worst thing in the world. And when, especially when you have protection. And so um, I, I really urge people who are at universities who have tenure. And I say that with tenure, my, my advice to people who don't have tenure yet is keep your head down because this is the kind of issue that can get you fired. All right. Well, these were tremendously successful events, extremely inspiring to uh, people who watch them. Uh, but uh, they're getting anxious in the chat room. So we're going to go to the first video, which if you had to summarize, it could be called uh, the suppressed origin story. Uh, and this is from Occupation of the American Mind. We hear over and over again that the conflict comes down to Palestinian terrorism and Israeli security. And what gets pushed out of the frame entirely is the fact that for almost 50 years, Palestinians have been systematically dispossessed from their land and denied their most basic human rights. Pioneers and refugees from countries of the oppression, young and old, they are going now to a land which accepts them. They will march to their work in the Jewish settlements to build roads, to quarry stones. They will drill wells to restore to Palestine's soil its long neglected fruitfulness. Zionism, the nationalist movement that emerged in Europe in the late 1800s, was dedicated to the idea that the Jewish people after centuries of living as persecuted minorities within other countries, were entitled to a state in historic Palestine, the biblical homeland of the Jews more than 3,000 years before. But there was a basic problem with the choice from the start. Palestine was already home to hundreds of thousands of Palestinian Arabs who had been living in Palestine for centuries, first under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, and since World War I, under the control of the British Empire and for decades had aspirations of their own for an independent state in Palestine. Tensions steadily escalated during the 1930s, placing more and more pressure on the British colonial government to reconcile the competing interests of both sides. After World War II and the Holocaust, the situation reached a breakpoint. Ultimately, the British colonial government made the decision to withdraw and to pass the problem on to the newly created United Nations. In 1947, UN Resolution 181 recommended that Palestine be split into two parts. Jews, who were a third of the population, would receive 56% of the land. Palestinians, who were two-thirds of the population and possessed more than 90% of historic Palestine, would receive 44%. These terms were immediately rejected by Arab leaders as unfair but in the spring of 1948, Zionist leaders declared Israel a state along the proposed borders anyway, triggering the first Arab-Israeli war. Arab armies set out to destroy the newly born nation, but suffered repeated defeats. After winning a crushing victory, Israel took possession of even more land. By the time armistice was declared in 1949, Israel controlled 78% of historic Palestine. The creation of the new state would be celebrated by Israelis as a triumph. But to this day, it is commemorated by Palestinians as the Nakba, the Arabic term for the catastrophe, in memory of the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who were driven from their homes to make way for the new Jewish state. 
All told, approximately 700,000 people, more than half of Palestine's native population, were uprooted. Okay, so there you have in about three minutes your documentary describing key aspects of events surrounding the 1948 creation of Israel, the War of Independence, the Nakba. And yeah, we never get any of that from mass media. So, you know, have they been doing a better job at giving this sort of presentation or perspective since the documentary was released? Uh, I wish I could say yes, but <laughs> the answer is no. Uh, I mean, one of the things about this, about this is, you know, history is always presented as, oh, this is so complicated and no one can understand it. And that's actually one of the reasons that people who would like to get involved and might want to say something feel as though they can't say something because it's presented as like so complicated that you have to be an expert before you, you know, before you can, before you can intervene in this. And in fact, exactly, the, the reality is it's exactly the opposite. The history is incredibly simple. It's in fact the most simple and easy to explain conflict in the world right now. Um, and Israeli propaganda knows that. And so when it's that simple, what, you, what, what propaganda then has to do is you have to make it seem as though it's complicated, seem as though it's not, and it's not, it's not simple and clean, clean cut. It's not simply about land, which is what the, which, which, which is what the conflict is about, uh, but it's about you know, lots of other things. You have to confuse it. And then you have to do what you, what, you have to then switch reality on its head. Rather than presenting the Palestinians as the victims of this, you have to present the Israelis as the right. victims. Right. Now, we're going to get to that in a, just a little bit, but we had uh, some questions more, more than once in the chat room. You know, in 2018, every Friday, Palestinians in Gaza protested at the wall, demanding their right to return to their homes in this great march of return. And some 300 people were shot and killed. 30,000 others were wounded, according to the you know, Gaza Health Ministry. What do you think of U.S. coverage about that? Well, I think um, the way to think about this is that the structure never changes. And you can you know, plug whatever you want into it. You can plug in you know, the Great March of Return. You can plug in the discussions around BDS. Uh, you can you know, plug in the discussions around annexation. You can plug in the discussions around you know, this, this, uh, this treaty with uh, UAE. Uh, mm-hmm. But the structure is the same. Uh, mm-hmm. And the structure is that Palestinians are seen as instigating the violence. And if you don't have the history, again, everything, context is everything. Context is everything. And if you don't give the context and all you see are the pictures... And, the majority, and what we saw in, in the coverage of the Great March of Return was a lot of Palestinians, uh, you know, throwing stones and using slingshots, etc. So it seemed as though Israel was under attack. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the history, right? You don't know the history, then that narrative that Israel is under attack, and and so yes, it's terrible. It has to kill so many people. It's terrible. It has oh, to. No, we're going to get there. We're going to get there in a second. But speaking of bombing Gaza, so, you know, they've been bombing Gaza pretty much continuously throughout the Republican and then the Democratic National Conventions without so much as, you know, a statement at either convention or or, or much coverage from mass media. I mean, what do you make of that? That's the way the structure works. Uh, you know, uh, about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. Right. And one of the things they talk about there is the difference between worthy victims and unworthy victims. Uh, 
worthy victims of people that we have paid attention to on a, a, a worthy empathy are people who are the victims of our, of, of our enemies. Mm -hmm. Those people who are victims of our friends disappear from view. They're not, they're not worthy of our sympathy. They're not worthy uh, of, you know, of, of even our attention. In that sense, uh, Israel-Palestine fits perfectly into this. In fact, when I, when I taught this and when I first started dealing with it, uh, it, it, was the, it was the Herman and Chomsky book that I used, that framework uh, mm -hmm. that sets out who has access. And that's when I say about structure. The structure is when this happens, the first people you go to for are Israeli commentators, and they get to set the frame. Right, and right. The first thing you hear is, oh, these Palestinians, are, they're attacking us again. What would you do? Well, well, okay, all right. We're jumping ahead here. I want to go now to the second clip, which is you, you just queued it right up, and this is Hasbara. And the whole strategy behind how this is dealt with in the media. So here we go. A Goliath steamrolling across the map. Two years after the Lebanon invasion, the American Jewish Congress sponsored a conference in Jerusalem to devise a formal public relations strategy known in Hebrew as Hasbara. Participants included PR and advertising executives, media specialists, journalists, and leaders of major Jewish groups. According to a brochure from the Congress, no single event brought home the need for a more effective Hasbara or information program more persuasively than the 1982 war in Lebanon and the events that followed. As one conference participant put it, Israel is no longer perceived to be Little David, but Goliath steamrolling across the map. The primary aim of the conference was to develop strategies to spin unpopular Israeli policies and to counter negative press coverage by shaping the media frame in advance. News doesn't just jump into a camera, a conference delegate said. It's directed, it's managed, it's made accessible. Israel-based advertising executive Martin Fenton would put it in even more blunt terms. Propaganda is not a dirty word, he said. Face it, we are in the game of changing people's minds and making them think differently. To accomplish that, we need propaganda. The conference was chaired by U.S. advertising executive Carl Spielvogel, the legendary ad man who created the highly acclaimed Miller Lite beer ads in the 1970s. The choice of Spielvogel makes perfect sense. He's known as a master of image inversion and rebranding, the ad man responsible for transforming Miller Lite, which had been viewed before as a woman's beer, into a manly beer that tough guys would drink. But the best part is that it tastes so great. <laughs> the best part is it's less filling. Nah, it tastes great. Less his job with Israel would require the same kind of rebranding, only in the opposite direction, to help soften the image of a country that's coming to be seen as a bully. So he recommends creating a cabinet post dedicated exclusively to explaining policy, whose job would not be setting policy, but presenting it in the most attractive way to the rest of the world. Classic PR is to say the problem is not the policy, it's the presentation. When the policies are so reprehensible that many people become critical, rather than acknowledge there's anything wrong with the policy, there's a doubling down on the PR effort. After Lebanon, you start to see the basic Hasbro strategy in action. Images of Palestinians fighting back against Israel's occupation make their way onto American television screens and the Israeli military crushes this resistance in brutal ways that undercut Israel's image as underdog and victim. 
Israeli helicopter gunships deliberately fired a missile into a crowd of civilians last night, killing seven Palestinians and wounding 70 more. Then Israeli officials go into full Hasbro mode and act like the occupation doesn't even exist, framing all Palestinian resistance as terrorism and Israeli aggression as self-defense. We will do whatever it takes to defend ourselves and defend ourselves we will. That's the basic Hasbro strategy in a nutshell. Even when you're violently crushing resistance to your own brutal occupation, portray Israel as an innocent victim by demonizing Palestinians as nothing but terrorists. The Palestinian terror campaign continues. It only justifies again and again that we, Israel, have to continue and defend ourselves. So there it is, uh, only defending itself. Is this Hasbara strategy still working? And I think you just have to look at the media coverage of these events and uh, and absolutely uh, see that it is. I mean, as I just mentioned, when you know the coverage of the, the Great March of Return, you know, fit directly into this. Yeah, you know, when you have you know what is it, the, the fourth or fifth largest army in the world going up against unarmed protesters who are you know using these most feeble weapons, it's still presented in that way as though Israel is under attack. Um, so that that's the basic strategy that uh, you know the basic frame. Um, that that they, they that has worked for a long time and uh, and they continue to work and especially as you know you've got that frame and then you have Israeli spokespeople just just strap just um, you know uh, giving the frame for it even more they're the first ones on to explain it just in case uh, you you've forgotten from the past right okay well so you know there's this news that was broken by Aiden Pink who's kind of been on the story for a while in the Jewish Daily Forward about Israel directly funding some U.S. campaigns by organizations such as Christians United for Israel with millions of dollars laundered through an intermediary organization. Um, so whether you've read that incredible article or not, um, it, I'm just wondering, does anything that or any of this other large, very intense campaign, extremely professional, does anything else compare to this? Um, I mean, I, that was a question that I was, I was thinking of the last few days, and I don't think so. I can't think. As I said, I, I think this this campaign should be taught in PR schools as as, as a way of of controlling a discourse center and to establish uh, establish a particular discourse. I often say, this, like, right? I mean, we don't want yeah. we don't want to teach this, do we? I mean, really. Well, um, but that, if you're again intellectually honest, you should. But I was thinking about this. You know, if but I was thinking in, back in, you know, what if the South African government, you know, the right. South African apartheid government, if they had thought more about PR and they had thought more about, you know, Nelson Mandela most probably would have died in prison. And we most probably would, you know, it was, it was the, if they, and they had everything set up, you know, they had, you know, Reagan was on their side, Thatcher was on their side. Um, if they just thought about PR in a, in a slightly different way. Now, what the South African case doesn't have, and this is what Israel Israel case has, uh, it has an internal constituency. There are lots of pro-Israel people in the U.S. And it also has, as you just mentioned, um, you know, these Christians United, uh, uh, whatever the term was, uh, that, you know, you have this evangelical movement that is, that the regard that needs Israel to control everything from the river to the sea. So, um, you know, so that the rapture can take place. <laughs> And so they have a religious reason to support these political 
um, that you know this, this political aspect. And so that kind of combination of kind of external stuff, uh, you know, there's a, the, the military-industrial complex also, of course. Uh, arms manufacturers have a stake in this as well. You have, uh, you know, Christians have a stake. I don't think that comes together in, in you know, with any other issue other than this one. And, and, and of course, you've got to do a lot of work. Remember, you, the more, this is what you have to think. The reason they have to do so much work is they have to turn reality on its head. Right. You can do that. If, yeah. if you control the language, if you control, I was, I was one quote I often use in my classes is um, the Chinese you know, philosopher Confucius was once asked what he would do if he were to run the state. Someone said, if you're in charge, what would you do? And he said a very interesting thing. He said he would, quote, rectify the language. And if you can control the language through which reality is viewed, then you can control people's perceptions of it. And that, and the more that you need to switch, as I said, you need to kind of switch the eternal reality on its head, the more propaganda and the more public relations is. Well, well, let me ask you about the words then, because we can see an example of this right now. On July 1, um, Israel was allegedly going to formally, what they said and what a lot of groups and, and uh, activists for Israel in this country said was they were going to apply sovereignty to portions of the West Bank. Uh, but then others were calling it an illegal an annexation, a violation of international law. So you had two camps clearly emerge with their own way of describing what was going on. Um, how, how typical is that? That again, you've got two different ways of explaining the same thing. Sure, I mean, and I think that's the issue to do with how Israel-Palestine is presented, is that if we were presented with both viewpoints, then people actually could make up their own minds. But, you know, the, Palest the Palestinian viewpoint is totally marginalized in this. And in our film, that's all we're really talking about, is saying what would happen if there was a real debate and Palestinians were really allowed, the Palestinian side was really allowed to be explained and really allowed to be presented. And I'm pretty sure, and, and, as, and the Israel lobby is also sure, that if that happened, then American public opinion would turn against Israel if Americans actually knew this. Okay. And so well, it is, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a conflict in language. Uh, and you have to, and you have to, and, and one of the, you know, the most important thing is, is silence. It's not only what can be said, it's also what is not said. And therefore you've got to keep people out of the frame. I mean, what I found interesting about the annexation um, uh, debate was it was largely presented as a kind of internal political issue in Israel. You know, can Netanyahu get away with it? You know, mm -hmm. what were Israelis thinking? And also then within the U.S. Right. Uh, most of all the people that, that talked about this were kind of mainstream Democrats and Republicans talking about it. And again, the Palestinians were totally marginalized. And if you've done that, then it doesn't really matter, you know, who, who, it doesn't really matter, you know, what is told. If the people who are speaking are so narrow that the question becomes narrow. Right. Well, so uh, now I want to get into probably my favorite part of this uh, documentary, the three-step process, empathy, admission, and the effort to turn tables. So get your comments on this. Israel can saturate the media with its spokespeople, but there's still the problem of massive Palestinian casualties showing up on television screens. 
you can't make those images go away. An Israeli official actually said, in the war of pictures we lose. So you need to correct, explain, or balance it in other ways. Here again, the Luntz document spells out which talking points have been most effective in spinning the brutal reality of Palestinian casualties. He says the first thing the pro-Israeli spokespeople should do is to express empathy for the innocent victims. Unfortunately, innocents do get hurt, and we, we really grieve that. We're sad for every civilian casualty. The entire situation is, is tragic. Once you've done that, Lund says, you also have to get people to empathize with Israelis by describing what life is like for them, living in constant fear of Hamas rocket attacks. So again and again, we hear the focus-tested phrase that the rockets are raining down on Israel. We have thousands of rockets raining down on our civilians. Rockets were raining down on Israel. And the advertising executive will tell you the essence of propaganda is repetition. Rockets raining down on southern Israel. Rockets raining down on Israel. Well, Hamas rockets rain down on Israeli border towns. Then, Luntz tells PR spokespeople to turn the tables and ask the American people, what would you do? So what would you do in the United States? Can you imagine um, what America would do if it were facing a similar threat? We always try to ask you the question we ask ourselves. What will you do? What would you do? What would you do if more than 3,000 rockets had been fired on your cities? What would you do? 3,000 rockets. What would you do if terrorists were tunneling under your frontier? What would you do if three kids are kidnapped because of a tunnel network? What sort of question is this? Of course, anybody would act to defend themselves against unprovoked aggression, but it is a question that is completely devoid of any context. What drives a society to a point where after multiple devastating wars, they continue to resist with these most feeble methods? They don't want you to ask that question. They don't want you to ask what is behind this? What's the history here? Who are these people? Where did they come from? Why are they so desperate? No. They want you to understand Israeli behavior. Israeli behavior is always characterized as a reaction to unprovoked violence. Then on top of that, when massive numbers of Palestinian civilians predictably die from Israeli attacks, Israel claims it's part of a deliberate Hamas strategy to drum up sympathy. They use telegenically dead Palestinians for their cause. They want the more dead, the better. So they end up in this upside-down Orwellian world where Israelis killing civilians becomes an unforgivable transgression against Israelis. It is hard to come away with any feeling but that we are in the midst of a world gone mad. Last week, I found a quote of many years ago by Golda Meir, one of Israel's early leaders, which might have been said yesterday. We can forgive the Arabs for killing our children, she said, but we can never forgive them for forcing us to kill their children. It's not difficult to imagine Americans identifying with Palestinians who are suffering, but they need to be able to see that suffering on their television screens and in their newspapers. Israel said today its new offensive is targeting terrorists. And when your sense of the coverage is that there's something that these people did to deserve this, or that they are affiliated with terrorists and terrorist-minded governments, the fallout of that is an inability to identify with people who are suffering in far greater numbers and in far greater proportion than their Israeli counterparts. So we kind of um, talked about this a little bit, but I want to get in probably a, a less important part of this, which is just simply, you know, you 
and some others exposed this Israel Project 2009 Global Language Dictionary. You, it's fairly well known. You can know about it if you want to. You can read it. Does exposing that sort of strategy make a difference? Um, it makes a difference to the people who can see the exposure. And we know that. And so the, 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 what the strategy now is, you've got to then marginalize those groups or films like us that talk about this. I mean, the, the question is, you know, does it make a difference? Well, the Israel lobby thinks it makes a difference because they've done all they can to make sure our film, The Occupation of the American Mind, <laughs> is not seen. Um, I mean, in one sense, the more, the more attempts that are made to stop the film being seen uh, is, for me, an indication of how important they regard the propaganda campaign to be, uh, that they don't want this to be exposed. And so if you can limit the exposure, I have no doubt the people, and, and I've seen it from, you know, people have told me who've seen it, one, and, and other things as well, or, or through my classes as well, I mean, people have, I've been teaching this for a while, um, once people know, right. you can't unknow it. Right, you can't And so the, the strategy is to make sure people don't know. The people, even these things. So you have to. So you know, I when when the, when our film came out, you know, we didn't get into. I, I think it's a pretty good film. You know, it's it's and with a narrator, with you know, one of the great rock stars of our age, with as a narrator, Roger Waters. It didn't get into one film festival. We submitted to all these film festivals. Didn't get into one film festival. It didn't get any mainstream media coverage. Uh, the only yeah. place it got coverage was, you know, through Al Jazeera and through other international online places. And for me, that's an indication of how important it is to control the discourse and, yeah. and the way in which the way in which the film has been attacked, the way in which I've been attacked. You know, if we if if, if it didn't matter, they would ignore it. Yeah, if it didn't yeah. matter, they would ignore it. And, but the fact the fact that these attacks are coming is an indication that they think it's important. That they well, think it's important that, that that there be a monopoly on this and there be no other voice. So, so tell us, I mean, now that we're all thoroughly depressed, has alternative or social media made any inroads or offered any sort of viable place for people to go? I mean, it's got its own problems, but is there any hope on that end? Has that changed since you made this? Uh, yeah, I think that's been the major change is that people can now, if you know about it, I mean, that's the great thing. Of, that's the thing that people kind of confuse about online stuff is once you know about it, you can find out all kinds of things, but you have to know about it first. And I think the major way in which social media has worked is through organizing. It has allowed us to organize and allowed us to get the word out amongst people um, who already are, are concerned about this. Uh, but online stuff has very little influence in terms of mainstream public opinion. So I think online stuff is great for organizing. We have to do it. We have to use it. Um, but we shouldn't confuse that with, you know, with, with intervening within a culture. Uh, to do that, we've got to really, we've really got to take on the mainstream media. I mean, again, in the clips that we saw in that last, in the, in the, in the, in the, or the, the, in the, the last clip from the film, uh, I mean, you saw how propaganda and public relations work. If you can get your words, that is, the rockets are raining down, not coming from the voices, not coming from the mouths of Israeli spokespeople, but coming from the mouths of American reporters, then you've done your job. Because it just seems, well, that's the way reality is. And to keep that going, you've got to make sure that other voices are not, uh, other voices, you know, can't enter into that debate. 
Right. Uh, so I think online stuff is is great for organizing and for and for self education for those who already uh, already know what they're looking for. Uh, but it doesn't. But we've got to also not confuse that with uh, with real organizing, which is how do you get out into the mainstream of, of opinion and how do you how do you change opinion? So is that the way like savvy media consumers can avoid being relentlessly propagandized? Is it simply saying, go out, you know, meet with your community organizer, get into the right social media circles? Is that the solution? Uh, I, I, well, I think the solution is it's a kind of trite thing to say, but I think the solution is education. Uh, Noam Chomsky said a long time ago, uh, he said, you know, citizens of the democratic societies, uh, need to engage in a, in a, a program of intellectual self-defense to protect themselves from propaganda and public relations. And I think that, again, that is why we're attacked so much. Uh, we, we have no hope of, of being able to match the billions of dollars that are spent on the propaganda on, on, on the other side. But if you can turn that propaganda around so that when people see it, when people see it, they can identify what they're watching. Um, then you can use the propaganda against itself. And that's, that's the hope. I mean, that's why the Media Education Foundation kind of exists, is to, is to provide that kind of education so that we're not providing an alternative, because there's no way you can provide an alternative, but we are providing a way for people to be able to deconstruct a very familiar world in a new way. Um, and so I, I think the more you can talk to people and to the more you can talk to people who think they already know people who don't know and just say, you know, there's another way of looking at this. Right. This is not the only way. There is another way of looking at it, that that is, you know, that's the first step. So you've, you've had some real fans of these uh, UMass events you did. And one of the questions that came up in the YouTube chat was now that you've moved on, are, are those going to happen anymore? Is that still something you are going to, you know, give to us? Um, yeah, this is most probably bad news for the university. Um, I mean, I, what I am, I've, I've retired, but I'm a, what's called a professor emeritus, which means I'm still a professor there. Uh, and my aim is to carry on with these events at the university. Um, the institution does not want that. I think they thought that when I retired, you know, one of their big headaches went along, you know, went with it. Um, but I can tell you that once we're back to meeting, I mean, that's the thing. We, we had a, I you know, we, we were going to plan uh, we were planning on events, you know, going up to the election before COVID hit. Uh, but as soon as we are back in, uh, as soon as we are back uh, to meeting live, I think the next event we will we need to have uh, is to build upon the Black Lives Matter movement and the connection between Black Lives Matter um, and the Palestinians' struggle for human rights. Uh, right. So that, that for me, that's 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 the way in which I'm thinking about the next event. So the answer to it is yes. Um, unfortunately, or Unfortunately for the university, I've not gone away. <laughs> okay, well, that's that's really good news. And I'm sure people uh, who are watching this will be following you. And, and so that's really a, a logical question. If you can tell us about the opportunities to see your work, um, any documentary recommendations that you might have, um, and, and maybe something about uh, whether people could get a sneak peek of some of these high attendance online education uh, opportunities you provide. Sure. Uh, well, the, the, the Occupation of the American Mind is available for free on YouTube, so I would encourage people to go there. 
Um, the, and the two events we did, the Not Backing Down event um, and the Criminalizing Dissent event, again, they're online for free. So it, again, would encourage people to go there. There's some incredible speakers. Um, I mean, watching Tim Wise take apart, um, you know, white supremacy uh, from the viewpoint of anti-Semitism is just, just a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. That's, in the criminalizing, that's the Criminalizing Dissent event. Um, from my own part, um, you know, my online, I, you know, I've been teaching online for quite a while, uh, before, you know, before everything, before the whole world went online, I've been doing this for about 10 years. And if people are interested in it, it's, I have an, I have a website, it's kind of an old fashioned website, I need to update it, but it's, the website is satjali.com. So if you mm-hmm. go to satjali.com, and then there is a button that says online courses, Okay. Uh, I have about a, I have about a, a you know, about a hundred lectures that people can watch there if, if you, you know, if you're so inclined. Okay. <laughs> right. This is, so you, you, this is the old, this is my present website, and I need to redesign it. But it's there's a lot of video on there if people are interested in, um, um, yeah, in, in looking at stuff. In terms of other recommendations, um, I would recommend, uh, I mean, uh, uh, four videos or four films. Yeah, you told me to put those up. So here's yeah. a. Here's, here's, here's that. So these, these are the four films. Uh, yeah, and there's many more. I mean, one of the great things that's, that's happened in the last little while is that because of digital production, the means of production have become democratized. And there's a lot of great films out now, but a lot of great films that people have not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, so the first one is the, the film that we did in 2001. Uh, it's actually the kind of the precursor to, to the occupation of American mind called Peace, Propaganda, and the Promised Land. And that is, uh, you can find that for free on, on YouTube somewhere. <laughs> okay. um, and then I would also recommend, there's a great film uh, from a legal perspective called The Law in These Parts. Right. Uh, which is the, the reason we see what we see is it's designed to be that way. The reason the Palestinians don't have human rights is because that is designed to be that way. This is not some accident of this, you know, of this great democracy in the Middle East. Um, so The Law in These Parts. And then... Uh, for the comparison to South Africa and apartheid, or to think about apartheid issues, there's a mm-hmm. great film called Roadmap to Apartheid, which okay. I recommend. Uh, and then also there's a film that the Media, Media Education Foundation uh, distributes. We didn't make it, um, but we, we distributed it, and it's called The War Around Us. Uh, and it's about two journalists uh, caught up in the first, uh, or the, 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 the 2014 Israeli bombing of Gaza, um, and that's called the war around us. And if you really want a sense of what it like, what it's like to a filmic sense of what it's like to to be in that situation where bombs are coming down, and you don't know. It's a great kind of experiential film. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, so that's that's just excellent references. There, we'll put the links down below in the YouTube description, um, and of course, we'll embed this video. Uh, over at israellobby.org. Uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to mention that we'll be doing our next event on September 10, and that will be um, with uh, Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb of Jewish Voice for Peace and Alan Brownfeld of the uh, American excuse me, American Council for Judaism, uh, which are discussing basically the growing disillusionment of American Jews and some Israelis 
with the Jewish state and Zionism and what's happening with uh, the younger American Jews who are looking at the occupation and uh, actions toward Iran and uh, not feeling uh, not feeling the same as the older generation. So that's September 10. Uh, Delinda Hanley, the executive director of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, will be moderating that and taking your questions. And all of these uh, extra events are on the same conference website as our National Press Club events. So you can look at the extra events, sign up, they're free. Um, and it's at israellobbycon.org. And they've all got the registration links. You know, we may not be using the same platform, so it is important to sign up for the email lists of either organization, IRMEP or MIA, to get those announcements. Um, and so I just want to uh, thank our guest and ask uh, if he has any final remarks. Um, well, there's a lot I could say, but I, 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 let, me, let me leave you with a piece of advice. <laughs> I, I think that this course, the, the thing that we can do right now is that to have this, to have this discussion um, um, in, increasingly more on the left. And I think we have to acknowledge that there are people who are on the left who think who are our, our allies on other things that on Israel and Palestine are not. And that rather than let that question go, we have to force people to think, what does it really mean to have a progressive viewpoint? You can't be progressive on everything except Palestine. Uh, if you want to be, and, and so the left has to have a left perspective on this, and it's not difficult to do. So it's not just a matter of having these, these discussions with, you know, crazy Zionists or, or with, you know, people. Who, it's having this discussion with people who you think should be on your side and who should be your allies and who are not, and to confront them as to why they can be left on everything other than Palestine. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to um, our uh, video of this. We'll probably clip out some of the flubs, but uh, thank you for your time. And we're really excited to hear about those next UMass events. I got to tell you, there was a lot of excitement in the chat. Uh, okay, great. Well, uh, hopefully we'll see everyone next March when we have, uh, have your event. All right. And yeah, <laughs> we do expect everyone to go in March. Uh, you can stay updated at israellobbycon.org. All of the speakers uh, who have committed uh, to the 2020 event have accepted postponement. So check that out. Uh, uh, so it will definitely be there and the rest of us as well. So thank you for uh, coming today. And this is the end. Goodbye. Bye-bye.